Hello again, everyone. I'm Jim Harper, Director of Information Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. We're into the home stretch of a great conference, I think. Uh, we've had wonderful exchanges of views. Uh, very welcome, incisive questions from, from you all in the audience. Stick it out for the rest of the day because we've got a great speaker now. We're going to return to those, the issues he raised on the last panel, and I recommend, I recommend staying for that because that's what's, I, I think, going to bring it all home for us. As we've heard yesterday and today, uh, the way we react to terrorism is one of the key determinants of how much damage it does to us, how much it costs us. And that makes it one of the key determinants of how attractive it is as a tool for groups who would use it against us. So controlling our reactions to terrorism is one of the most important elements of strategic counterterrorism. For today's keynote, we have one of the leading, if not the nation's foremost expert, on risk perception and risk communication. More information is in the packets, but Paul Slovic is professor of psychology at the University of Oregon and the founder and president of Decision Research, which is a research organization that investigates human judgment, decision-making, and risk. His book, The Perception of Risk, compiles the most important papers that he's produced, and it's a leading work in the field. Paul's talk is entitled Challenges to Rational Decision-Making in the Face of Terrorism, and it's something that we all need to understand so that our leaders can be directed by us, perhaps, to communicate better about terrorism and terrorism threats. Please welcome Paul Slovic. Thanks very much, uh, Jim, for inviting me. Uh, I learned a lot yesterday. I'm learning more today. And uh, I hope that what I have to say will be of, of interest as, as well. Uh, actually, uh, the uh, presentation this morning by Bruce Schneier uh, and anticipated a lot of what I'm going to uh, be saying. He covered very well a lot of the issues that are psychological in nature, dealing with, uh, with emotion and fear. Uh, what I'll try to do is put a more basic uh, uh, scientific substrate behind the kinds of things he was talking about in hopes that uh, it will uh, broaden our thinking about, uh, about psychological aspects. Uh, let me start with a, a quote from uh, Robert Glover, who, who's... Uh, uh, book 2001 was about uh, humanity, a moral history of the 20th century. And what uh, Glover uh, said that was, uh, to avoid further disasters, we need political restraint on a world scale. But politics is not the whole story. We have experienced the results of technology in the service of the destructive side of human psychology. Something needs to be done about this fatal combination. The means for expressing cruelty and carrying out mass killing have been fully developed. It is too late to stop the technology. It is to the psychology that we should now turn. And that's what I'll do uh, in my presentation, is to focus on uh, psychological uh, aspects. We've heard uh, psychology coming up in many of the presentations um, today and uh, talks about biases, how we uh, exaggerate uh, some forms of uh, response and so forth. What I hope to, to convey is that the... Uh, the responses that we make, uh, sometimes uh, to our own uh, uh, detriment, are really part of a more fundamental way that the human mind works and, and that works um, well most of the time, that uh, a lot of the, uh, the ways that we think uh, are adaptive. They've helped us uh, survive uh, over the course of evolution. Uh, as Bruce said, uh, we have a a mind that uh, is adapted well to uh, 100,000 uh, B.C. Well, that is true. We also have a, a more modern uh, uh, 
adaptation in our in our minds that is much more sophisticated and analytic. Uh, and uh, the problem is that it also resides at the same time next to the more primitive um, way of thinking. So these two forms of thinking kind of uh, do battle. They go back and forth in what we've called you know, the dance of affect and reason, affect being this more primitive response, reason being the more uh, uh, modern form of, of uh, uh, rational thinking. And to be, to be rational, uh, we have to use both ways of thinking, the uh, primitive, intuitive, uh, emotional, and the analytic side. We've got to kind of uh, coordinate those in some optimal ways. Uh, a lot of times this doesn't happen. So uh, we do make mistakes. Uh, it's not going to be easy to eradicate uh, our ways of thinking because, as I say, these are ways of thinking that basically serve us well most of the time. So uh, that's the, uh, the, the basic uh, overview. Uh, what I'm going to do is to briefly uh, review 50 or 60 years of development in a field that we call behavioral decision-making. Uh, it's the study of how people make judgments and decisions, and particularly in situations of risk and uncertainty. Um, the, uh, the first wave of this research uh, began in the 1950s when uh, people started to, uh, to question some of the uh, economic theories of rationality. Uh, economists um, have been very, uh, very wedded to the notion that people are, are rational. They maximize their, their utility or well-being if they have proper information. And that markets also um, uh, are rational and efficient. Uh, and so uh, slowly uh, empirical work started to chip away at that in small uh, pieces. This started in the, in, in the 1950s. And, and evidence was provided that in certain situations, uh, people behaved in ways that did not follow the tenets of economic rationality. Well, this small uh, uh, foot in the door uh, has uh, grown steadily for, for 40 or 50 years, and now uh, we have a lot of evidence that uh, economic rationality is flawed. I think most recently the financial crisis is a very dramatic uh, indicator of, uh, of uh, this, uh, some of the problems. But uh, that was the first wave. Uh, the second wave actually was, well, if people aren't always following uh, the economic rationality, uh, what are they doing? And that uh, led to the development of, of a domain called the study of heuristics and biases. Heuristics are strategies, kind of mental strategies, not necessarily conscious, but they're, they're processes that people use to, uh, to deal with uncertainty. So, you know, uh, uh, we're taught in statistics how to take data and to, uh, that may have an uh, uncertain element to it and how to, how to draw meaning from uncertain data through uh, precise statistical uh, principles. Well, how do humans perform as intuitive statisticians? We often uh, have to do the same thing with information, but we, we typically don't apply statistical formulae to do it. So what do we do? Well, we use heuristics. One of the heuristics is uh, called the availability heuristics. If we are asked, well, here, uh, how likely is something to happen, we, um, we look to um, how easy it is to imagine it happening or how easy it is to recall instances where it happened in the past. And if it's easy to recall or imagine, we tend to judge it as more likely. That's called the availability heuristic. 
And a number of these heuristics were uh, identified and put forth. Uh, a 1982 book that I co-edited with Emma Tversky and Daniel Kahneman is called Judgment Under Uncertainty, Heuristics and Biases. And it chronicles a lot of the, the uh, heuristics that uh, were known uh, at that time. One of the uh, effects of these heuristics that is very prominent is overconfidence. Uh, and a lot of demonstrations are put forth to show how we are uh, we we tend to be overconfident uh, in the uh, precision of information that we're given. So that was the second the second wave. Uh, the third wave started in the 1970s, and I was a bit involved in that. It's a uh, study of risk perception, and particularly uh, using something called uh, the psychometric paradigm. It's just a fancy term that means uh, you, know, you ask people questions about risks and you, uh, and you analyze those questions quantitatively. Um, and we were particularly interested in why is it that, that people are very afraid of some uh, hazards and unconcerned about others, and that often these, uh, these concerns don't match what experts say we should be concerned about. So, for example, in the 1970s, uh, people were very uh, uh, concerned about nuclear power, but rather unconcerned about uh, medical exposure to medical uh, radiation, medical x-rays. Or we tend uh, to be rather blasé about uh, uh, what nature can do to us, natural disasters. I mean, uh, nature is a very uh, a devastating force, and uh, when a disaster hits, we react strongly, and then we pretty much uh, forget about it and go back and uh, relocate right on the site of the last uh, flood or earthquake or, or whatever. So uh, c compared to the way we react to uh, small exposures to, to, uh, to chemicals in our food or, or air, or to small amounts of uh, non-medical radiation, we're, we are very tolerant of what uh, nature does to us. Well, why is this? So we started asking a lot of questions, having people rate and scale risks of all kinds. And we, we found, for example, that in one study, um, the, uh, the hazard um, that people were most concerned about, uh, the public, was nuclear power. Uh, one of the ones that they were least concerned about, as I mentioned earlier, was uh, exposure to medical x-rays. We had a group of technical uh, risk assessment people do the same judgments, and they had nuclear power relatively low on their risk of uh, on their uh, hierarchy of concerns, and they had X-rays rather rather high because we got a lot of exposure to radiation from uh, from X-rays. So that's interesting. They're both radiation technologies, so it's not simply fear of radiation. So then we went and we asked uh, other questions about these these hazards. Well. Um, you know, how controllable do you think exposure is to the, the hazard? Uh, uh, could, it, could it have a catastrophic outcome? Uh, how well understood or known is, is this risk to science or to the public? When we did that, we found that, that, that hazards are kind of like people. You can sort of think of hazards as having personalities. Uh, they, they have personality traits like uh, controllability and uh, uh, immediate versus delayed effects and so forth. And we found that these, these personality characteristics were uh, predictive to a certain extent of how people responded uh, to a risk. So uh, nuclear power uh, 
differs from x-rays. It's seen as much less voluntary, uh, more catastrophic. Uh, it evokes um, uh, greater feelings of dread. It's seen as, uh, was seen at the time as less well understood, less controllable, and so forth. So by looking at the qualities of the, uh, you know, the perceived qualities of a hazard, we could predict uh, the differential reactions that people, that people had to it. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the, the public is, is always is wrong when they disagree with the experts because you can see that there's a, f- a form of, of logic or rationality in these factors that the public is concerned about, which are sometimes left out of analytic models. That is, you know, should, should, there, uh, should you react differently uh, to exposure, uh, involuntary exposure to to some hazard than to voluntary exposure. Well, one can argue that you should and that this should be factored into, uh, into risk uh, evaluation models. So that was the, uh, uh, the third uh, wave. And, and we can see also that, that uh, terrorism uh, hits uh, all of the hot buttons that were identified in these early, uh, in these early um, Models, because we, we found that acceptance of risk tends to be reduced. We're less tolerant if the hazard is new or unfamiliar, if exposure is involuntary, if the risk is not under one's control, if it evokes feelings of dread and the outcomes we believe could be catastrophic, um, and if the risk comes from humans rather than from uh, nature. Those are all things that elevate our perception uh, of risk and reduce our tolerance of risk. And these are the kind of things that, uh, that terrorism uh, brings uh, those are, that's part of the personality of, of terrorism. Um, then uh, another uh, development came out of this uh, third wave on perception of risk. We started to look at, uh, at the impacts of perception. So you might agree or disagree that a perception is rational or uh, exaggerated or whatever. Uh, but regardless, uh, perceptions have, have, have impacts. They have a reality of their own, even if you don't, uh, you don't agree that, they're, uh, that they make sense. And we, um, we noticed that the, that the effects, uh, the aftermath of, of, of an event, um, the, the, uh, um, the impacts could not easily be predicted by the immediate damage, the, you know, the destruction uh, of, uh, of uh, property or the lives that were lost. Uh, so, for example, uh, in, the, in the 70s, the Three Mile Island accident came, came along. And, uh, you know, the uh, radiation was contained. Uh, there was no loss of life. And yet that, uh, that event had an immense impact uh, on the nuclear industry and probably a wide range of other types of regulatory uh, activities. And that's not easily predictable from a model that, that uh, way, views risk as probability times consequence, where consequence is direct damage. So then we started thinking, well, there's, you have to think about the indirect damages, what are you know, commonly called ripple effects. And we see that when, uh, when some incident takes place, not only do you have the inner circle of the, of the ripples, the direct damage, but you have things going out. You know, uh, industries can be affected. Whole technologies can be affected. All kinds of secondary and tertiary uh, impacts can take place with vast social political and economic impacts, and they, needed, they need to be modeled. Uh, and uh, the concept of social amplification of risk uh, begins to, uh, 
to um, draw our attention to the need for our risk assessment models to take into account these these uh, indirect impacts. And we'll hear later from my colleague uh, Bill Burns, who is uh, uh, doing some applying systems dynamic models today to try to look at the ripple effects uh, that uh, different types of terrorist uh, incidents might might have. So that's uh, again a, a follow-on and the uh, relating to this concept of social amplification of of risk. Um, then the the fourth the fourth uh, wave uh, coming uh, after this is. Uh, has to do with emotions and feelings. We might think of it as uh, risk as feelings. You've got risk as something that comes out of analysis. You also has, have risk as feelings. And again, this really speaks to our evolutionary background. Most of the time when we uh, deal with risk, we do it uh, with our um, gut feelings and our instincts. Uh, we make decisions about risk all the time. If you go out and you drive, uh, drive your car down the street, you're making all kinds of judgments. You're not doing any... Uh, analytic calculations. You're just using kind of your perceptual uh, senses and they're feeding in and creating feelings in you, whether it's safe to, to cut back in front of this car or not. You do it in a very uh, fluid, uh, uh, automatic way and usually uh, it works. Uh, it's probably linked to the firing of various uh, sorts of neurons in different parts of the brain. Um, and neuroscientists are beginning to, uh, to look at, at risk uh, behavior uh, at this level. I, I look at it at one level up because this neuronal firing creates in us feelings. Uh, uh, in our jargon, we call this uh, affect. Affect is simply the feeling that something is, is, uh, is uh, good or bad. And we, uh, it, uh, affect plays a central role in what are called now uh, dual process theories of thinking. Uh, and again, that's just a jargon for the old uh, the heart and the mind, you know, the uh, uh, reason and emotion. Philosophers have been talking about the inter interplay between reason and emotion for centuries, and we're now studying this very systematically in cognitive science and in neuroscience. And what we find is that, uh, that uh, we think uh, uh, this intuitive system, which is also often called system one, uh, thinks in a form of images, associations. It's, it's very much uh, perceptual-like. And when these, these uh, sensations uh, come, come to us, uh, they, they may or may not carry uh, feelings. They may, not, they may be linked to associations based on past learning, uh, mostly. And this is a very powerful uh, way that this is our guidance system. This is the way we make trade-offs. We usually don't make trade-offs by, by ca carefully weighing the relative importance of, of uh, you know, security versus cost uh, versus uh, civil liberties loss or something. We, you know, it comes to us, uh, uh, um, we use our, our, our gut feelings. How does it feel? Uh, when we think about these things. So let me give you some examples. Uh, in the 1950s, a psychologist named Osgood said that, that the dominant dimension of meaning, of language, of words, is this affect or feeling basis. So if you, when, when you hear a word, if you understand the meaning of that word, a major part of the meaning is the feeling it conveys. So I'll, I'll tell you a word, and in, in a few milliseconds, you'll get not, you'll get, You'll hear the word and you'll have a feeling because that's part of the meaning of the word. So I'll tell the word is hate or joy or um, carcinogen, whatever. Uh, the, uh, a major element of, of 
understanding the meaning of words is understanding the feelings associated with that. Um, uh, other images, they can be uh, visual, it can be photographs. Think, think of the, the image of the, uh, from Abu Ghraib uh, in, uh, in Iraq. They galvanized the world, those pictures. I mean, they, you could have had a, a news report with the words. It wouldn't have had the impact that those images had on it. So those pictures uh, convey, uh, convey feelings. Um, one of the most powerful images of the 20th century uh, is that of the mushroom cloud, of the atomic blasts. And that, that image of anyone who, you know, has that image burned into their brain, it affects their, their behavior. We looked uh, 50 years after the, after the uh, uh, bombings in, in World War II. We asked people, what's the first thought or association that comes to your mind when you hear the words nuclear power? The dominant response was bomb or you know, death, destruction, uh, the you know, weapons imagery. This is a half century later. It was triggered not by the word nuclear uh, uh, bomb. It was by nuclear power. So, and, and I think that that image, uh, you know, that type of association and feeling has held back the, uh, the development of nuclear power uh, in this country and will continue to hold it back, even though we now look to nuclear power uh, to help us uh, overcome um, the problem of, of uh, climate change. Uh, it will have to confront this image. So what about the image of, uh, from 9-11? You know, the, you know, the, the images of those planes crashing into the Twin Towers, uh, you know, burned in our brain. Uh, we may think, okay, we're, we're over it, but my sense is that, 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 that for those of us who carry that image in our brains, it will have a very subtle uh, effects on, the, uh, on all aspects of the ways we live our, our life. Uh, these things can be studied. We found that if uh, people who associated nuclear power with uh, bomb imagery uh, were much more anti-nuclear. They had very uh, strong uh, policies against, uh, against the burial of nuclear waste uh, and so forth. So these, these images uh, remain in us, and they, they have, uh, have influence on us uh, for a long, long time. Um, another illustration of the subtlety of this intuitive system um, one study that was done by social psychologists uh, uh, was to ask people to evaluate how, uh, how attractive the uh, image of a, of a Japanese uh, character was, just a visual attractiveness of this complex uh, character. But before making the judgment, people were shown subliminally for four milliseconds a picture of a smiling or a frowning face so quickly that they did not uh, notice this. They went, later, they never had... Uh, felt that they had uh, seen the face, they couldn't identify it when they were shown it, and yet if that face was smiling, they judged this character as more attractive than if the face was, was frowning. That's how fast our brain works to form, uh, to form uh, feelings that then influence our behavior. Uh, we call this reliance on this feeling uh, the affect heuristic. Uh, we identified this heuristic by asking people to judge the risks and benefits of different activities and technologies. In the world, risk and benefit are positively uh, correlated. Things that have high, uh, high risk tend to have high benefit or we wouldn't allow them. If they have low benefit and high risk, we try to get rid of those things. So there's a positive uh, correlation 
correlation across different activities between risk and benefit. When people judge risk and benefit intuitively, there's a strong negative correlation. It took us a while to figure out why this was, but we then realized it was because they were using their feelings as a guide to judging risk and, ban uh, and benefit. If they like the activity, um, uh, then they would judge it as high in benefit and low in risk. If they disliked it, they'd judge it as low in benefit and high, high in risk. So you see the difference. If you judge the risks and benefits of pesticides. People don't like pesticides, so they judge them as high in risk and low in benefit. Uh, medicines, people have a more favorable view. They judge them as low in, in risk and high in benefit. So this led us to formulate what we call the affect heuristic, relying on our feelings to judge risks and benefits. Another aspect of the subtlety of these feelings uh, has to do with how we evaluate a probability of something going wrong. So supposing I tell you that there's a that there is a 1% uh, uh, chance of some adverse event come happening, some, something, say, relating to terrorism or whatever, 1% chance. Or I say that this will happen, you know, a one out of a in one out of 100 situations like we have. Well, people uh, see it as more risky when told it has, happens one out of 100 times than 1%. 1% is a number. When they hear one out of 100, they start to imagine the one thing happening. That thing carries negative feelings. Those negative feelings make us think it's riskier, and then we respond accordingly. And this has been, uh, all this uh, that I'm saying has been uh, uh, shown uh, uh, in various ways uh, empirically. Um, another, uh, another element that, is, that comes from this um, is that if, if an event carries a very strong feeling, then we disregard probability. We've heard that identified a number of times here as related to terrorism, and it's accurate. But you can show it in, in the laboratory. You can ask people, uh, supposing you're facing a 0.99 chance of losing some amount of money, $20, $20, how much would you pay to get out of that situation? Or supposing uh, uh, you have a 0.99 chance uh, that you're going to have to, you're going to experience a painful electric shock. How much would you pay to get out of that situation? Uh, these are two different groups. Two other groups are given the same outcomes, but with a 0.01, a one chance out of 100 uh, probability. Uh, the people who face the shock, different groups who face, face the shock, uh, they pay as much to avoid a 1% chance of shock as a 99% uh, chance of shock. Uh, they, there's much more sensitivity pro to probability with regard to money, but for shock, it's insensitive. It's because People are worried about the, the shock. They focus on the shock, and, they, and, and it, that confuses them. Because they're worried, they react as though it were likely, 1%, 99. The feeling is the same, the anxiety about the shock. Well, this has been identified by uh, Cass Sunstein, legal scholar who's about to join the Obama administration. He wrote a paper on probability neglect where he says this is what happens with terrorism. The terrorism terrorist acts are so uh, horrific to us. They, they're, they're so emotionally um, uh, strong that that probability goes out the window. And we've heard discussions of this uh, in the past. All I'm saying is that you can see this in the laboratory. You can see that this is linked fundamentally to the way our brains process information. Uh, uh, not only do we neg neg neglect probabilities, we neglect other numbers. If you look at, at loss of life, we're very insensitive to uh, large numbers of large losses of life. Uh, if you're told that 200,000 people have been murdered in Darfur, you think, oh, that's very bad, and you have a feeling about that. If I said, oh, wait a minute, the latest is now 400,000 have been murdered, uh, you won't feel any different. 
200,000 for it. But, you know, the difference between zero and one uh, uh, life lost or saved is very great. But once we get out further out, we, be, uh, we, we become insensitive uh, to that. Um, how am I doing on time? I'm running out of time. Um, a communication, very briefly, uh, that's, so that's the way affect works very powerfully to, uh, to drive our, our motivations. Uh, communication to public, very, very briefly, I think it's all about, uh, about uh, control, um, that uh, we, when one con- communicates, uh, uh, you need to, to demonstrate that the uh, authorities uh, have the knowledge and ability to, uh, to control the risk and that they also uh, communicate to you what you should do uh, to control uh, to control the risk. Uh, will people uh, panic? Sometimes they do panic. After uh, 60 Minutes had this expose about ALAR in 1989, that is a carcinogen on apples that you can't uh, control and EPA isn't controlling properly, there was a panic. The whole apple industry collapsed overnight. So if you undercut this con- uh, the feeling of control, uh, it's, uh, then you have very powerful uh, problems. So communication, I think, really needs to focus how, on how the risk is uh, competently being managed and controlled and what you can do. Um, so basically, that's, uh, I think I'm running, running out, of, uh, out of time. Um, one last thing about communication, if you're dealing with an area like radiation or chemicals, uh, you should prepare those, the messages in advance. Those are very complicated messages to try to convey uh, you know, small, what the meaning of small exposures to radiation might be. It should be done now in a calm period. Uh, you can't do it in a crisis. My sense of, uh, of this is that we don't have good messages uh, to communicate how to uh, the risk from various exposures to uh, small amounts of radiation chemical chemicals that needs to be uh, done now. So I'll, I'll close. There is a community of scholars uh, studying judgment and decision-making, at least a 1,000. I would uh, encourage uh, you to... Uh, to seek these people out and to uh, involve them in some of your activities because they are specialists in uh, helping us think rationally about these very difficult uh, problems of uh, risk and uncertainty as related to terrorism. Thank you. We're, we're right about at, at time, but let's take a couple of questions. We're going to stay in our seats and go straight to the next panel as soon as we're done with Dr. Slovic. Um, questions. His his talk was perfect. I take it. Ridic. It was perfect, by the way. Thank you. Yes, that was a great talk. Um, so concretely, I mean, like, is there really a way to change to change the way people feel? I mean, is just is preparation really a way to to change things? So talking about like what's going to happen if something happens, is this really going to change this, the automatic and spontaneous response of the brain and the emotion and the adrenaline and all that stuff? Can, can this be actually really taken care of beforehand? The, the, the hope is that if we, if we understand this well, that... Uh, we may be able to change it, even though it's so ingrained in, in us. So, for example, uh, uh, 
people who are, who are phobic. Okay, this is an, an emotional reaction to a situation. They're afraid to go outside or afraid of snakes or something. Uh, you can uh, change that reaction through counter-conditioning. You know, if you're under, understanding how phobias work, you can provide experiences that lead then to the, uh, you know, to, to break through that as, as, as strong as it is in a person. I think other aspects of, uh, you know, dealing with uh, uh, creating trust, uh, recognizing that, uh, you know, how people are going to think and then it may help us um, create messages and experiences that, that will um, lead to a, a calmer, more reasoned reaction. But I, I don't have any, you know, direct um, uh, examples of that, but I think uh, that it, it should be possible to, uh, to deal at least with, with some of this if we understand it and uh, work from that standpoint. In groups, sure. A question comes from one of the other rooms, and I'll abbreviate it and, and, and put a gloss on it myself. Uh, Dr. Slovak, and, and I think this goes to how, how words can be used, why not abolish the use of the term terrorist and replace it with suspected covert saboteur? Now, I think we'll get to those kinds of issues on the last panel today, but, but the word terrorist is very strongly provocative and, and to talk to us perhaps about uh, how, how it works even when someone who hasn't done anything is called a terrorist. What effect does that have on, on the individual in the public mind? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it recognizes the fact that these words uh, are tremendously uh, powerful. And, you know, maybe they should be called criminals or some other, you know. But certainly terrorist has, has, uh, has uh, creates a feeling uh, in us of... Uh, Something that is very ominous, that's, uh, that threatens us, threatens me personally, uh, very difficult to uh, control, uh, a new, uh, in a sense, a new species of trouble. So, I mean, the, the words certainly make a difference. And we see this uh, used over and over again. When, when the civilians are, are killed in battle, we call it collateral damage, and we don't, uh, because that's a, a, a different, you know, less emotional term. So uh, it is an emotional term. What the right uh, you know, change would be, I don't know, and, what, and uh, whether it would work or not, I don't know, but uh, I think it, does, uh, it is a problematic term. Let's, let's take one more. Um, we'll take two more. The two gentlemen on the aisle, first Ben Friedman and then the gentleman opposite him. Yeah, hey, Ben Friedman. I'm from Cato. Um, to your knowledge, to what extent has this body of research, this body of knowledge, uh, which you're involved in, been um, taken up by the government, whether in the regulatory realm or, more importantly, for our present purposes, in the arena of homeland security and counterterrorism? I'm not aware of the government or the um, uh, homeland security people uh, using this uh, uh, very much. I I could be wrong on that. Uh, I think think, uh, this community of scholars has been – have been slow to – be brought into this, although there has been some effort uh, the academics but i i haven 't seen it much, but i I may just not know of it and final question opposite him right behind you there you go yeah yeah that's for sure uh, I, one of our earlier speakers had uh, a little uh, list upstairs of uh, things you can do to be ready. Uh, such as 14 days of medication and food and water and these kind of things. And uh, having done that myself, I felt uh, a great relief. Have you uh, observed that sort of uh, 
preparatory uh, behavior as um, any kind of uh, reduction of uh, affect? Um, I, I, haven't, uh, I haven't studied it, and probably not too many people uh, have done that or would do that. Uh, and in a way, it's a way to, to control the risk. But, but, but the very act of doing that uh, ex, uh, is a recognition of, your, uh, of risk and vulnerability. I mean, every time you, know, you, you go into an airport and you see the security people, uh, okay, that – Maybe it's reassuring, but it's also a little bit worrisome. So, yeah, I mean, it may be a smart thing to do, but but it is a a, a acknowledgement of some problem there that you know you're that you're doing it. It probably makes it certainly makes sense in natural disaster uh, regions uh, to be prepared like that. Uh, but I haven't seen it studied directly. Let's leave it at that. Um, please remain in your seats because we're going to go directly to the next panel. But join me again in thanking Paul Slovic for his fine speech.